I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Den of Geek podcast featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is Episode 5, the late edition of G News for March 2018, in which we'll be discussing South by Southwest, Westworld, The 100, and a slew of other topics. Including our bonus topic, which this week is a discussion with Editor-in-Chief of Den of Geek, Mike Cicchini, who's going to talk to us about Krypton, the new show on sci-fi that's like a Superman prequel, and he is a Superman expert. So it's a very interesting discussion, especially for those of you who want to know some of the history behind Superman and how the new show on sci-fi is going to tie into it. So it's very exciting to look forward to that. But we've got a lot of great news coming out this month, and I can't wait to get into it. So let's go right into our new segment. All right, Mike, let's talk a little video gaming because, you know, with video games on all consoles costing the consumer upwards of $60, the the realization that you might have to shell out additional money through microtransactions rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I I know it did with me when I first learned about it. Yeah, for sure. And anyone that's been in the market for a PlayStation 4 over the past year or so has likely taken advantage of the Star Wars Battlefront 2 bundle and I, I know i did in the last couple months as, as a matter of fact still haven't opened the game yet but <laughs> however after gamers and critics sent ea a message loud and clear the game maker made a change to its financial system so electronic arts just unlocked all the heroes in the game meaning players didn't have to grind through battlefronts sometimes tedious progression system to play as luke skywalker or darth vader you know beloved characters who were available for free and without all the extra work via cash microtransactions in the first battlefront game so apparently the first game they were free in two no Yeah, that doesn't make much sense. (laughs) No, either grind your way or pay your way. And if you're not familiar with gaming microtransactions, put simply, they allow gamers who want to spend more money to gain an advantage over other online opponents. They can through options like Battlefront's loot boxes, which uh, is probably something you're aware of back from your gaming days where you could buy a sword or... Well, not to mention even just mobile games these days. You know, you can gain an advantage just by getting those extra little bits and bobs for 99 cents here and there. Yeah. And to a certain extent, the only way many gamers could choose to play as Luke or Darth Vader would be to pony up more money above and beyond the price of the game. And, you know, players with money to spend could also buy in-game perks that gave them an advantage in multiplayer roles, meaning you could simply pay to win matches by having the best gear and the best abilities. I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. And while EA hasn't totally done away with microtransactions, they now focus on more cosmetic applications in the battlefront world. So 
even though EA took a lot of heat on its Reddit site, you know, they tried lowering the price of loot boxes. And at one point, the company's stock took a hit. Oh, my gosh. I know. So if you want to read more about EA Star Wars Battlefront 2, check out John Saavedra's Den of Geek piece. Electronic Arts has finally unlocked all the heroes in Battlefront 2. Well, that sounds good. And I know Battlefront 2 has been a topic of discussion on Den of Geek for quite some time. So those Star Wars fans out there will be very happy to hear that. Now, one of the things that's very topical for this time of year is the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And David Crow and Chris Longo, a couple of our editors here at Den of Geek, attended the festival and had lots to say when they got back about the ups and the downs of the festival. And in all, their article discussing the festival in general discusses 23 films. And some of them even get their own article if you hunt around for uh, a couple of the ones that I'm going to mention here. But I just wanted to highlight some of the ones that caught my eye. The first one is Ali and Cavett, The Tale of Tapes, which was a documentary that was featured at the film festival that examined Cavett's unexpected and long-lasting friendship with Muhammad Ali. And what ultimately brings this film together for historians and enthusiasts of pop culture and documentaries for that matter are some hilarious and forgotten moments of Cavett's kinship with the champ, which sometimes goes from professional to genuinely affectionate, as well as Cavett's modern recollections of some kind of cool behind-the-scenes stories of their partying off-camera, and it can get kind of sorted. So really cool documentary that film festival goers were able to check out. Yeah, and for some of our younger viewers, if you don't know Dick Cavett, it's almost stranger bedfellows could not exist than Ali and Cavett. Yeah, it seems like a really fun little documentary. And then, of course, in the fiction categories, there was one that really caught my eye, mainly because it has Carla Gugino in it. And I will watch any movie that she is in. She's one of the actresses that I refer to as my kryptonite because she doesn't even have to have a good role. I just like watching her in the show. I'm raising my hand as well. (laughs) But Elizabeth Harvest was the movie she was in from writer-director Sebastian Gutierrez. She wasn't the main character. The main character there is played by Abby Lee, who's a young and beautiful woman who seems to have a happy married life with a rich and brilliant Nobel laureate. And he whisks her into his ultra-modern mansion in the hills, allowing her access to his art, his finances, his fashion, and even his enigmatic yet queerly sympathetic servant, Claire. And that's where Carla Gugino comes in. But there's only one caveat. Elizabeth must never go into this particular room. So, of course, she does. Of course. (laughs) And I love that premise. And David Crow on on the Den of Geek site says that this has a chaotic yet tangible playfulness to its perversity. And the visual style can be intoxicating even when its story is not. So I think there's been a few movies out there that have followed that visual style that is fun to watch, but maybe there's some flaws in the story, but still should go see it. And I think that falls into this category. And of course, even the blockbuster hit that's about to hit theaters today, as we're recording this ready player one hits theaters. And that was also featured at South by Southwest. So lots of great stuff at South by Southwest. If you want to read more of the 23 films that were featured in the article, check out the article by David Crow and Chris Longo. Cool. I have a hundred pages left of ready player one. Then I can start watching trailers. Okay. (laughs) All right. Now, uh, with the CW's hit post-apocalyptic drama, The Hundred, set to return for its fifth season on April 24th, it's probably time to revisit where we stand with some of the principal characters. And, you know, while much of the focus will undoubtedly be on Clark and the time jump, 
Marie Avgaropoulos's Octavia has arguably undergone the most significant transformation of any Sky Crew member. And it's funny, I think naturally Clark drew everybody in at the beginning, but Octavia is far and away my favorite character at this point. Oh, for sure. I've enjoyed her journey, especially in the recent seasons. Right. So how has Octavia, now the leader of the unified clans, weathered the storm and what can we expect from her character this season? So Den of Geeks, Katie Burt had the chance to interview Avgaropoulos and Adina Porter, who plays Octavia's mentor, Indra, during a December set visit. And according to Avgaropoulos, season five gets much darker, if that's even possible for the hundred. <laughs> yeah, really. As Octavia struggles to maintain peace among all the clans. Resources are running low and they have to come up with creative methods of survival. And the one method that I think is out there, nobody really wants to say it out loud. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's always new and creative ways to bring them to the brink of survivability. Right. Now, she brings up Octavia's mantra, which is one crew. But as you can imagine, she doesn't have an easy task bringing former foes together. Life in the bunker has not been easy. So how have they managed? And Porter says... Well, there's no way to see out of the bunker. And she says the two characters are still close, adding, we get to spend a lot of time together since underground, there aren't a lot of places you can go. <laughs> yeah. I get to spend time with both my daughters, my faith-based flamekeeper daughter, Gaia, and my warrior daughter, Octavia. Yeah, that, and that's something to easy to forget that they're underground and it looks like we're talking about a six-year time jump. Oh, wow. That's going to be cool. I, I like that. I mean, we already saw in the finale that there was a bit of a jump as well. Yeah. So The 100 returns April 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern time on the CW. And if you're a fan of the show, check out Katie Burt's full article at denofgeek.com. The 100 season five. What's next for Octavia? All right. I'm definitely going to be checking that out. Very much looking forward to The 100. Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit here back to the video game world. And Matthew Bird, who is definitely one of our uh, more expert video game writers, had something to say about Microsoft's new uh, service policy, which had a language ban written into their terms of service. So on March 27th, he's writing about the fact that they wanted to clarify that the company is able to serve penalties, suspensions and bans against people who use, quote, offensive language across Xbox Live, Skype, and other Microsoft services. Well, that's just a bunch of poo, Mike. <laughs> exactly right. It's funny because they're also, you know, targeting things that you would expect, especially with some of the video streaming services to combat things like nudity, bestiality, <laughs> pornography. This is the wording in their terms of service. Offensive languages in there, of course. Graphic violence and criminal activity, which those last two are kind of ironic given the content of the actual games <laughs> that you can play on the services. But it's the offensive language part of the terms of service that's raising eyebrows because how do you enforce that? And the truth is you don't because, <laughs> you know, basically... Microsoft can access stored and shared content when they look into alleged violations, but they're not going to be actively looking for violations. So it kind of indicates that that part of the policy is going to work off of some kind of user report system. But those who are defending this policy, and I'm, I might have initially been on this particular bandwagon where we're kind of imagining that, you know, this is to punish overly eager young Call of Duty players who 
use their microphones to suggest what they and your mother will be doing later that evening. But other than that, they're not going to be using it to crack down on anything else. They're just trying to get the people who are messing up the environment of these services. But as Matthew Bird puts it, that shows a level of optimism that borders on foolishness. You know, you should be scared of it because of the clear line that it traces between today and a future in which we are openly fined credits and money for violations of this verbal morality statute based solely on a definition that's determined by the company. And the, if that doesn't sound like a dystopia to you, I'm not sure what will. <laughs> well, yeah. And you mentioned they're not going to actively seek people out. But you know, what about podcasters? I mean, you and I made the decision six years ago that that there was no reason to use language. I mean, we were going to have a clean podcast so that everybody could listen. But we all know there are plenty out there that are explicit as they're tagged on iTunes. And plenty of gaming streamers on Twitch and otherwise, you know, not just Microsoft products, but, you know, they certainly might do that. And it kind of puts a crimp in their plans. So, yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope. And I'm glad that Matthew Bird wrote this article to kind of address that. All right. Well, speaking of slippery slopes with HBO's flagship series Game of Thrones winding down, the network suits have to be pleased with the viewer and critical reaction to another of its prestige dramas, Westworld. And with season two set to air April 22nd, it's time to maybe dive into the 1973 Michael Crichton film that provides the basic framework for the hit series. And while a lot of our listeners weren't around in the 70s, you maybe need to delve into the back catalog, if you will, because the early 70s were a golden era for dystopian sci-fi. I mean, Omega Man, Soylent Green, the original Planet of the Apes, not the one with Marky Mark, <laughs> uh, Logan's Run, Rollerball, so many memorable and, and some not so memorable looks at the assorted <laughs> grim and broken futures that might await us. Now, maybe that was the mood of the times. Interestingly, trips to Disneyland <laughs> provided creative inspiration for Ira Levin's The Stepford Wives, as well as Crichton's screenplay for Westworld. So, and you can tell. I mean, I think the the opening scene of that movie, where they're kind of interviewing people that have been to the park or are going to the park, just really kind of puts you in that frame of mind. It's cheesy, but it's really worth a watch. And I enjoyed watching it before HBO's Westworld started just because I was curious. Yeah, I did the same. Now, Crichton's screenplay not only explores the theme of dehumanization in the burgeoning technological age, but it also focuses on the danger of technology run amok. The created coming back to wreak havoc on the creator has you know, been a common science fiction theme, but here it's handled in a kind of unique way. And we have to wonder whether amusement parks that allow us to live out our darkest fantasies will eventually become part of our culture in the future. And it does seem kind of likely. And while we throw around the iconic label fairly liberally these days, Yul Brenner's portrayal of the gunslinger in the original film continues to resonate. And now that Ed Harris's Man in Black stands at the center of the HBO series, it might be time to take a look back at the series origin story. So if you're into Westworld or if you're just into the history of science fiction, for more backstory about Westworld, the film, check out Jim Knipfel's Den of Geek piece, Westworld, a look at the movie that inspired the HBO series. Yeah, definitely a good look at the thematic ideas that are in the HBO series. 
but a little bit more focused look on it. Like they don't spend so much time with the company itself, just the aftermath of the, of what happens. So yeah, definitely fun. And you know, you got two hours, you can, you can watch it. I'm not even sure if it's that long. So. No, I, I think it's less. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, my final story I want to talk about is something that Joseph Baxter wrote about, and that's a new TV series that's being developed based around a comic that might be not familiar to many uh, people, and that's Astro City. And Fremantle Media, which is the production company behind Stars' American Gods series, has acquired the rights to this comic title. It's a quirky collection of stories of a bunch of different superheroes, and it's in a world where superheroes are fairly commonplace. It was created by Kurt Busiek for Image Comics, and then it moved to DC's Vertigo imprint in 2013, and that's definitely one of my favorite imprints because of the type of stories that end up on that particular line. I have Why the Last Man, for example, as one of my favorites from that title, but Astro City is really cool. It takes place in this comic book style metropolitan setting, and it's essentially kind of just a slice of life that showcases different adventures of the array of costume heroes that live in Astro City, along with the regular folk who have to deal with their sometimes destructive deeds. Now, on on the surface, this kind of seems satirically derivative, and it has been done before, but this particular one has achieved acclaim in its approach because it doesn't settle on any individual protagonist or supergroups or anything like that. Instead, it kind of constantly goes back and forth between well over 2,000 characters in the in the comics run, shifting to several self-contained story arcs, because the series launched in 1995 with this quasi-Superman character named Samaritan, who was a super-powered time traveler trying to prevent the dystopian future from which he came. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And of course, that's a very familiar (laughs) premise that we've come to know and love. And consequently, it's going to be very interesting to see how this Astro City TV show will frame its focus, because that seems like it would lend itself very well to episodic television, don't you think? I I do. And, and, you know, certainly DC has... You know, I had a lot of success with with turning some of its comics into TV with The Flash and, and Arrow. So, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly excited to see what, what comes out of this. Yeah, so it's a question of whether it'll take a more comic book purist route and manifest as kind of an anthology series shifting between story arcs, or will it maybe take a more conventional dramatic approach like the shows you just mentioned, focusing on one protagonist or group while attempting to conjure these different esoteric elements that were showcased in the comics and this massive sandbox that Astro City exists in. So definitely looking forward to 
that still in the early development phases. But if you want to read more about this ongoing story and it will be an article that will be updated as news comes out, check out the article by Joseph Baxter. So lots of news coming out in this uh, late half of March. But one of the shows that just started in March, in fact, March 21st, my birthday, was the premiere of Krypton on Sci-Fi. And I got to talk with editor-in-chief of Den of Geek, Mike Cicchini, who went to the set of Krypton when it was being filmed in Northern Ireland. I was very jealous of this particular trip he took because it's it's a mostly British cast. And in fact, um, we're going to be talking on Sci-Fi Fidelity to Aaron Pierre, who plays Dev M on Krypton. And we're going to talk a little bit about that character, among others, in this chat. But let's go ahead and listen in on a very comics origin type of discussion of this Superman prequel. All right. I'm here with Mike Cicchini, editor-in-chief at Den of Geek, to talk about Krypton, the new Superman prequel on sci-fi. And Mike, would it be accurate to say that your love of all things Superman may be the reason you've risen to your current position in pop culture journalism? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a pretty safe assumption. The first movie I ever remember watching is uh, is Richard Donner's Superman movie from 1978. And uh, I wore the tape out as a little kid. So <laughs> here I am. And now is this uh, new Krypton prequel, was it something that you had trepidation about and then it exceeded your expectations or what was your feeling going into it, especially since you visited the set? Well, when it was first announced, I was a little concerned because, you know, prequels tend to want to overexplain their world. And uh, I just kind of felt that we've already been down this road with Smallville and Gotham and, you know, always to kind of mixed results. So I, I was a little skeptical when it was announced, but as more information started to come out, uh, it caught my attention. And then the, the visit to the set was, uh, was a real eye opener. Okay. Well now you probably are familiar with some of the elements that they've used. A lot of this of course is brand new, but how many of the Kryptonian characters, the actual people on the planet, uh, who are natives are based on ones that you've seen in comics or movies before. In the first episode, you know, you'll meet Segel, who is based loosely on a character from a comic called The World of Krypton, which was a 1988 miniseries by John Byrne and Mike Mignola, the, the creator of Hellboy. But that character only appeared in, you know, a few pages of two comics ever. He was never a real protagonist. So they've they've really changed his story here and, and kind of made it into something uh, a little more compelling. Other than that, there's Dev M, who is a member of the Kryptonian Military Guild. And Dev M started life in the uh, Superboy comics of the 1960s as kind of, a, you know, kind of like a juvenile delinquent. Uh, who had been cast into the Phantom Zone. And then over the years, Dev M became something a little bit different than that. But the character that you meet on the show doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance to the Dev M of the comics either. Beyond that, you know, a couple of names are familiar. You'll hear you'll hear names mentioned. Like Zod, for example. Well, yes, yes. Zod is, is the House of Zod is definitely a thing. But uh, Lyda Zod and Jaina Zod have never been in the comics. And uh, as far as I know, you know, there there is no Zod family tree where those names pop up. So 
they've taken what's available and they've taken these little elements of Superman lore and crafted something very different from it. And of course, uh, the things that occurred to me are the mention of Rao as sort of a religious figure and also um, the city of Kandor. Those are also elements from the comics, right? Oh, yeah. And what really struck me when uh, when I visited the set and I spoke with Cameron Welsh, who is the executive producer and he's the co-showrunner, they really put a lot of thought into the religion of Krypton because they've created Kandor as this theocracy. So Raoism is this dominant force in Kandor and Krypton used to be polytheistic. But now, at least within Kandor, we don't know what's happening in the other city-states on Krypton. But at least in Kandor, it's this aggressively monotheistic society. And they've given it all of these little details. You'll see there's little statues of Rao, you know, the way your grandmother might have a, might have a crucifix hanging over her bed or something. So they really went deep on the religion. It's kind of a neat element that I didn't expect. And Kandor is, you know, probably the most famous city in Kryptonian history, mostly because it meets a tragic fate before Krypton does. I don't know if that's how it's going to play out here, though. Yeah, I mean, we've got a couple of possibilities because Brainiac has been introduced and that was part of Kandorian history, of course. But you you mentioned the theocracy and and the city-states, but there's also a very rigid class system in Krypton. Is that how the planet's always been depicted? Because it's a little off-putting to think of our hero coming from a place like this. No, you know, in most traditional depictions of Krypton, it's always this technologically advanced, pretty democratic, scientifically driven society with elements of, you know, you kind of know your place in society, you know, like people know from an early age that they're going to go into science, for example. But the idea of it being so rigidly classist, the way it's depicted here, is completely new, where it is this, this very stark division between the haves and the have-nots of Kryptonian society. Uh, I've never seen it quite like that. That World of Krypton comic that I mentioned earlier did have some elements of that in that you could see how Kryptonian society was a little bit decadent in some ways. And this organization called Black Zero was advancing a particular cause that helped bring that down and not really in a positive way. And Krypton ended up embroiled in civil war. But even there, you didn't see the kind of rigid class structure that you see on this show. And of course, part of that might just be because we are removed from Kal-El's generation by two. His grandfather is the main character in this series. But we also see an introduction of a mysterious element coming from Adam Strange, who talks about Superman because he's traveled across time and space to to show up in this show. So what can you tell us about Adam Strange? Uh, well, the Adam Strange of the show is kind of different from the Adam Strange of the comics. The Adam Strange of the comics was this John Carter of Mars, Flash Gordon uh, character with a, with a cool spacesuit and a rocket pack and a ray gun. And here he's a dude in beat up Chuck Taylors and a, and, a De- <laughs> and a Detroit Tigers hat. So it's an interesting inversion of that. Adam Strange in the comics has been around almost as long as characters like Barry Allen or Hal Jordan. I mean, this is the, the 60th anniversary of Adam Strange. And he's, you know, he never achieved the kind of fame of the rest of the DC pantheon. 
And he was a guy who was an archaeologist who gets struck by something called a Zeta beam and transported to a planet called Ran. And when he's on Ran, he becomes like this great hero of Ran and becomes embroiled in their, you know, in their own political wars. And, and but when that Zeta beam radiation wears off, he has zapped right back to Earth and he can't go back to Ran until he's able to figure out when he can catch the next Zeta beam. So there's elements of that in the first episode of Krypton where that beam wears off and it's this weird process and he just disappears. I expect they'll explore that a little bit more. But the Adam Strange that we're seeing on the show isn't an intergalactic hero. Uh, you know, I spoke with the actor who plays him, Sean Sipos, and and he made it pretty obvious that this is a guy at the start of his career, that this mission that he undertakes to Krypton is something that he's doing to prove himself to the other heroes in the DC universe. So I don't know what else that means for his character, but it, it could make for some interesting developments down the line. Now, one of the other familiar elements that I spotted in the premiere was the mention of sort of a precursor to the Fortress of Solitude, which has become very famous in many iterations of Superman. But there were some Easter eggs hidden around the room. Can you tell us about some of the things you spotted? <laughs> okay, that Fortress of Solitude set, I kind of almost lost my mind in a very unprofessional <laughs> way when I when I saw that because it is enormous. It is, you know, it's basically life-sized. So there's a few things that I won't talk about because they are spoilers, but you see those enormous oval windows. Each of those, they're kind of luminous. And if you look closely, you could see there's Kryptonian lettering contained within them. Each one of those tells the story of a different member of the House of El. And they took those stories from old Superman comics. Uh, you know, there used to be World of Krypton backup stories that ran in the Superman comics of the 70s and 80s. And, you know, they would go back, you know, and tell crazy stories about not just Jarrell, but people even before him. So each of those windows actually tells a story but it's in Kryptonian. So unless you can translate Kryptonian, you're not going to know what they are. <laughs> but they put those details in there. There's also two big statues that dominate the set. And it's it's a man and a woman holding up a globe. And in the comics, Superman keeps statues of his parents at the entrance of the Fortress of Solitude of Jor-El and Lara holding up a globe of Krypton. Obviously, that's not the case here. These statues are meant to represent the first of the line of the House of El. And the globe that they're holding isn't Krypton, but it's Krypton's son, uh, Rao. So that's kind of neat. That's just like a neat design choice that recalls the comics. But my favorite thing, and you can see this right when they first walk into the fortress in the, in the first episode, there's a glass case with this weird alien plant in it. And that is a Black Mercy they used the Black Mercy on an episode of Supergirl last year, which was kind of neat. But the Black Mercy originated in a Superman story from 1985 called For the Man Who Has Everything by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. That's the creative team behind Watchmen. And it is one of the greatest Superman stories ever told. And the Black Mercy attaches itself to you. And in your mind, it grants you your greatest desire, whatever it is, whatever perfect world you can envision for yourself, that's what you will live out in your mind while the Black Mercy, you know, feeds off you until you die. 
So that's neat. I can't imagine that they're going to just put that in the fortress and never use it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a Chekhov's gun if I ever that, heard one. <laughs> yeah, that is Chekhov's Black Mercy. So, um, you know, and there's there are some other things in there that will come into play in later episodes, but I don't think we want to discuss those just yet. But one of the things that's definitely foreshadowed in a very brief glimpse is Brainiac, the main villain, I would assume, or, or maybe not the main villain, but the overarching evil that is kind of creeping up on Krypton to sort of motivate people to get things done. And it's a very different depiction than we've seen in other shows. He's much more godlike and menacing. What kind of Brainiac are we seeing in this series? Uh, this is the Brainiac that I have always wanted to see. There has never been a proper live action take on Brainiac. He, he featured a little bit on Smallville, but they've never really gone for it. And what's interesting is that Brainiac is a character. This is also the 60th anniversary of Brainiac. Uh, so this is a character who's been around for 60 years. He's generally considered to be one of the top three Superman foes. But he's never really had that pop culture moment. You know, the Superman, the animated series, did a great Brainiac. Justice League Unlimited did a great Brainiac. But it's never really kind of captured the menace and power of this character. And what they're doing here is they're pulling from a 2007 comic by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, which I keep telling people that this is, it's like the Superman three that you wish you had gotten in 1983. Yeah. It's, it was a, it was a story that ran in action comics and, you know, Gary Frank draws a very cinematic Christopher Reeve esque Superman and his supporting cast and they really made it a point to make Brainiac an A-lister for that. And it's great. It's If you were going to put Brainiac in a Superman movie, that's the version that you would want. So that's the version that we're getting on Krypton. It really visually and, and the whole menace of it is inspired by that. And it's interesting because David Goyer does work on the show. He co-wrote the pilot. He's an executive producer. He's one of the showrunners. And he wrote the 2013 Man of Steel movie. And that hasn't had a sequel and I can't help but feel that if man of steel two would have proceeded according to plan, you know, maybe this is the kind of brainiac that we would have seen in, in that Superman movie. But for now we're getting a movie worthy version of brainiac, but on TV. And it's weird that you can tell that just from the two seconds that we see in the premiere, just overwhelmingly evil. So yeah, it was definitely a good pilot. And if you guys haven't caught it it did just start on sci-fi on march 21st so you definitely have time to get caught up but mike chicchini thanks so much for talking to us today about krypton on sci-fi thanks for having me i hope to talk to you again soon all right there is nobody more knowledgeable about superman than mike chicchini and i loved that he got an opportunity to sort of geek out on superman you know more than just on the page uh, i think this was he, he occasionally appears on the game of thrones podcast here on den of geek but but he really got to you know, tackle a topic that was near and dear to his heart. Yeah. And I, with Supergirl having, I, I think, surprised a lot of us with the uh, direction it's taken from season one on, this has a lot of promise here. Right. So if you want to check out more, I think in the second episode just aired last night as we're recording this of, of Krypton. So plenty of time to catch up on sci-fi.com. But we had lots of different things to touch on from TV, movies, and comics, and gaming in this episode, so we hope you enjoyed it. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the April 2018 early edition of G News. 
when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, whether on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.